I've learned so much from Stephen's podcast this year, but taking the class with him this summer was really so much more informative. I really like podcasts, and I suspect you probably do too. But sometimes you need something deeper. Sometimes you need something more dynamic. Which is why Tent Theology will be running a spring school, starting on the 29th of March and running every two weeks until the 3rd of May. At the spring school, we will be going line by line through the Sermon on the Mount. There'll be space for teaching, input, and conversation. All the classes are online, and I've arranged them to meet as many time zones as possible. It's a lot of fun. Last summer, I ran something similar, and I asked some of the students for their feedback and to see if they would recommend something like this to anyone else. I enjoyed wrestling with the great theological material that Stephen recommended and guided us through, and this all made sense to me despite my lack of theological training. A Stephen Backhouse Bible study is like no other. It is awesome. It is next level Bible studying. It was wonderful to read all these great texts that he put in front of us and discuss them with people all over the world. I'm definitely going to be joining the next class. For prices, times, and to register, send an email to info at tenttheology.com. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. This series started because people were sending me emails and questions about their distress at the overwhelming support that they saw amongst charismatics and evangelicals for President Trump, but also more broadly for the aims and principles and methods of the Republicans and the Trump supporters and the conservative movements particularly. So this is how our talks started with people who just were despairing over any Christian alternative. They couldn't imagine anything new. They knew that the conservatives were not reflecting the way of Jesus. They don't think that the liberals and the left wing reflect the way of Jesus. But a lot of people are just despairing that there is an alternative or despairing how they could imagine a way that is not beholden to the left or the right wing. So the series started with a slew of emails about this sort of topic. But as the series has continued, now the emails and questions I'm getting are all to do with violence. The vast majority of questions I'm getting now are from people who recognize the implications of some of the things that I've been saying. And now they're starting to ask, what about violence? What about the military? What about police? What about defending our families and our property? These are the sort of questions that I'm now getting. And I have been deliberately not talking about violence and lethal violence in an explicit, specific way until now, because I wanted to set the stage. I wanted to lay the groundwork. I wanted to talk about violence within the framework of the way of Jesus. Of course, it's an important topic. In fact, I feel like the use of lethal violence to give up the right to use lethal violence against our enemies is probably the main way that the followers of Jesus are going to be an alternative to the right, to the left, and any other spectrum that you might care to name when it comes to politics and social organization. And this is an issue that also has to do with nationalism, with patriotism, with the tendency of the human psyche to want to gather together with those who look like them and sound like them as much as possible, to hoard resources, to expand territory, to defend the inner group against the outer group, or to further the interests of the in-group against the out-group. As I've said many times, I don't know how else to describe it. There isn't one good word to describe all of that. We tend to just use the word patriotism or nationalism 
or tribalism. And all of those words fall apart at various levels. But this is what we're talking about. Defending the people who look like you and sound like you as much as possible. Protecting the resources for those people and attacking those who don't look like you and don't sound like you. This is deeply human. It is deeply part of our history. It's prehistorical. And it is one of the main things the earliest followers of Jesus gave up. It is the main thing that they recognized they had to avoid. They recognized that patriotism was a vice that the world was telling them was a virtue. There is a theologian named Stanley Hauervas, H-A-U-E-R-W-A-S. Stanley is from Texas. He is a pillar in the world of theological and political examination of national identity, of war, of violence. I heartily recommend Stanley Hauervas to you. And Stanley often says to his students when he teaches on uh, Christian ethics, he begins his lectures by saying, before you understand anything to do with Christian ethics, you first have to understand nonviolence. You essentially have to become a pacifist if you want to understand Christian ethics. So Stanley begins with what we would call pacifism. And by the way, I'm going to talk about that word, pacifism, as we continue. But in any case, Stanley starts with saying, I want to turn you into nonviolent activists before we go any further. Now, I have a lot of time for Stanley Harvath. He is a, a giant upon whose shoulders we are sitting. But I am trying a different tack. Rather than begin with nonviolence, I very deliberately began with talking about benign indifference towards the governments and nations and states that we live in. I talked about the gospel as the announcement of your rightful king who has broken the siege. I talked about faith as the word which says, follow me, be with me, be seen to be with me, more than it says, agree to a set of propositions and mentally assent to the miracles. I talked about reading from below and reading the Gospels and the New Testament as documents of people without power rather than with people trying to figure out how to govern and rule the way that their land. I talked about powers and principalities as invisible forces which influence our lives, many of which are invented by humans and started by them as inherited traditions, common sense, religions, schools, organizations. I talked about the ethic of mutual submission, where everyone lays down their life for their friends, which itself is based on kenosis. Jesus creates the gentle space by withdrawing his will to make space for other wills to flourish. We talked about the Christ lens, where you read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus Christ rather than the other way around, where you allow the word of God to influence the other words about God. We talked about being a prophet and speaking God's truth into positions of power. We talked about being a witness to the powers, reminding the principalities and powers why they're there and what purpose they serve. We talked about don't clutch tightly to what is rightfully yours, even when it's rightfully yours. We talked about the fact that uh, being a follower of Jesus is never private. It's personal, but never private. It's a public event happening in open view of other public people. We talked about Romans 13 and how the submission to the authorities is not the same as giving the authorities every single thing that they ask for. And how patriotism and the, the feelings that stir when one is asked to give allegiance to one's home tribe, home nation, home empire are feelings that the earliest Christians recognized as a temptation, trying to grasp more than they were owed, and that how the earliest Christians were trying to put those feelings of patriotism, those feelings of allegiance, back in their box, back in their place, to give Caesar what is owed to him, not what he asks for. So this is why I began 
my series by talking about all these things because these are the framework for the Christian imagination. And violence and lethal violence is an obvious and key part of this. But I have found in my experience as a writer and a teacher and a speaker about these things, that if you go straight in and talk about violence, you will just immediately be met with some very common objections, all of which are being governed by an imagination that is not yet baptized. People don't want to follow the way of Jesus. I don't know how else to say it. They don't want to. And I'm talking about Christians here. Christians do not want this. They hear the teaching of love your enemies as a hard teaching. They hear it as a problem to be explained away. Not as a gospel message to be enthusiastically pursued. This happens all the time, by the way. The best way to make a group of Christians spitting mad at you is to suggest that they should love their enemies. I'm not exaggerating. This is the times that people get most upset. This is the cause of the most angry emails I get. It's when you suggest that the way of Jesus means you don't kill your enemies, especially in defense of your own property or patch of land. This makes people emotionally, viscerally upset, which suggests to me <laughs> that they don't want the way of Jesus. They feel like it's wrong. Which is why I don't begin these talks by talking about the intellectual and scriptural opposition to lethal violence. It's why I begin by speaking about the frameworks of allegiance and emotional attachment that we have to the inherited systems in which we were born. Because I think that's what's governing so much of our activity today when it comes to these issues. Underlying it all is patriotism, or protect my patch of land for people who look like me and sound like me as much as possible. And I know that this is the core fundamental reason for the objection. And it's not because of scripture. Because when you bring this up amongst Christians, the response is always, I know that Jesus said this, but... How do you run a country that way? I know that we're supposed to love our enemies, but what about the Nazis? I know that we're supposed to turn the other cheek, but what about when somebody invades your home? These are the sorts of things that always come up. And so the just note here, these are all good questions and we're going to talk about them. But I want people to see right from the start what's happening. And it happens all the time is that Christians, self-professed Christians, say something like, I know Jesus said this, but, and they institute the protection of their own property or their own country instead of the words of Jesus, and they use that as their reason to disobey the words of Jesus. All the energy, the intellectual, emotional, and moral energy, doesn't go into figuring out ways to follow the way of Jesus, it goes into ways to exempt themselves from the way of Jesus. And it almost always comes down to, I want to protect what is mine for people who look like me and sound like me as much as possible. And at the moment that following the way of Jesus hurts that impulse, then we throw the way of Jesus over in favor of all sorts of other things. And this is where the difference between being a Christian and being a follower of the way becomes most stark. Because you will find people who think they're being Christian and will quote Romans 13 or an Old Testament passage. Or they will quote the just war theory from the medieval church. Or they will quote various presidents or prime ministers who use God language when waging war. And then my conversation partners will claim that they have now produced a Christian argument in defense of lethal violence. Well, it is Christian, but one thing they never seem to notice is that they never mention the word Jesus. They never deal with Jesus. 
they deal with Christians, which is not the same thing. They deal with the Bible, which is not the same as dealing with the words and the life of Jesus Christ. They haven't used the Christ lens, for example, in reading their scriptures, and they allow explicitly, they allow various Old Testament passages about invading the land and killing the enemies, they allow that to trump the words of Jesus. Or they will allow Romans 13, which we've discussed earlier. They will allow a particular version of Romans 13, which is you're supposed to submit to the ruling authorities as they wield the sword. These passages will be used explicitly over and above anything that Jesus said or did, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to notice this is what is happening here. And I'm not saying that these are totally invalid lines of thought, but I want to point out that what people are doing is they are using all the resources they have to try and put Jesus and his words underneath the words and aims of nationalism and patriotism. They are not putting their patriotism at the feet of Jesus. Anyone who talks about violence and non-violence and the New Testament will immediately and very predictably be set with a range of questions and objections. These are so predictable that in fact someone has even written a book. My friend Justin Berenger has edited a book called A Faith Not Worth Fighting For, which I recommend to you, in which each chapter is written as a response to one of these common questions or objections. Now I do want to make it very clear to the listeners here. I receive a lot of emails of various tones. So the ones that are from people of bad faith or ill will towards me will list these questions as if they are knockdown arguments of why I'm wrong. But others of you have written similar emails with similar questions, but you are genuinely wanting to know. So I'm not trying to disparage everybody for writing these questions. For example, one group will say, you promote nonviolence, but what about the Nazis? Where would we be if we didn't fight the Nazis? And they think that's a knockdown argument. The other group will say, you say we shouldn't fight our enemies, but what about the Nazis? How do we talk about that? And I can tell the genuine difference in the tone, okay? So if you have been a person of goodwill who has written to me with these genuine questions, please hear my heart. I'm not dismissing you. I do want everyone to know, however, <laughs> that these are common questions and that what you might be thinking is your most complicated question or is the first time you've had to think about these things I guarantee you it is not the first time that somebody who has come to the conclusion that non-violence is a central part of the way of Jesus, this isn't the first time they've thought about them. It's always amazing to me, and I wonder what's going through somebody's mind when they find out that I support non-violence. And then I'll get an angry email or I'll get an objection after a talk saying, but Romans 13 says we should submit to the ruling authorities. Or... Jesus told his disciples to buy two swords. And these two biblical passages will be offered as if I have never thought of them before. As if this is the lightning bolt from the blue that's going to destroy any argument that the followers of the way of Jesus shouldn't pursue lethal violence. As if these aren't the two passages that people who support nonviolence don't think about all the time. Please be aware that if you bring this up to somebody, this is probably something they've studied, researched, or in my case, published on. This isn't the first time we've heard these objections, and we have very good reasons to talk about those passages. They slot into the framework of the renewed Christian imagination that I've been trying to build. Likewise, if you say, what about the Nazis, or what would happen if your wife was being held at gunpoint, wouldn't you use lethal violence then? These are scenarios which are addressed towards nonviolent practitioners all the time. So they are important questions, and we will talk about them. 
But I do want you to know that they're not the knockdown arguments that you might suspect. And they also aren't new to people who talk about nonviolence and who practice it. I've already mentioned some, but just off the top of my head, here are the common questions. What about where Jesus said to his disciples to buy two swords in the Gospel of Luke? What about the Old Testament passages where God tells the followers to wage war on the enemies? What about Romans 13 and the wielding of the sword? And then in terms of scenarios, you always get what about the Nazis? What about the police? And what about if your wife or your family was invaded, would you use violence then? The other very common objection or line of thought that comes up is something like, I know that Jesus said, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. But wasn't this just a private act and our public responsibility is different? So a differentiation between the private realm of the Sermon on the Mount and how followers of Jesus are meant to treat their enemies personally, and then the public responsibility that people have towards their neighbors or their countrymen. So I will be dealing with these in the following episode, probably episodes, because they are important questions, even if they are common questions, and even if they are quite predictable questions, they are still important, so we're going to deal with them. I mentioned earlier how I wanted to talk about the word pacifism. A lot of people who practice nonviolence or who believe in the Christian nonviolence don't actually like the word pacifism very much. Because pacifism implies passivity, which is not what's happening when people support the nonviolent attention to injustice. All that people who practice nonviolence are doing is they are refusing to kill their enemies. That does not mean they are refusing to participate in the fight against injustice. It does not mean that they are avoiding conflict or removing themselves from the world. It just means that killing a human being to solve a problem is off the table for the follower of Jesus and his way. That's all that that means. And so the practitioners of nonviolence are seeking new solutions and better solutions and alternative solutions to simply killing one's enemies. And they're doing that because they are trying to put their moral and intellectual and political capital into solving problems as much as they can according to the way of Jesus, rather than pouring all their resources into finding ways around the way of Jesus or finding ways to exempt themselves from his way. This is all that practitioners of nonviolence are trying to do. And the word pacifist sometimes carries with it a connotation of avoidance and passivity, which, by the way, I don't think is actually true. And it's certainly not true that a pacifist is a coward, because during the time of national patriotic jingoism, if your country is at war, and everyone is baying for blood of their enemies, I dare you to tell me that the pacifist is a coward. Pacifism and nonviolence are not responses that are drawn from a fear of fighting. They are drawn from a desire not to kill a human being, even when that human being is trying to kill you. This is an act of utter bravery and courage. And the pacifists and the nonviolent practitioners are not trying to avoid places of conflict. In fact, quite often they think that it's their role to be right at the front and center of where there is conflict. But the world being what it is has usually taken the word pacifist to imply some sort of mealy-mouthed, cowardly separation from the world. And so in an effort not to have to fight the same boring fights over and over again and die on those hills, a lot of pacifists just use the language of nonviolent resistance. Which brings me to another rubble-clearing exercise, which is the difference between violence and lethal violence. And I keep slipping into the language of violence, which is a habit I have, 
when it, what I really mean is lethal violence. And there is a difference here. There are some nonviolent practitioners who will think that all forms of coercion and violence are off the table for followers of Jesus. Any attempt to use harm or pain or physical restraint, for example, or even verbal intellectual violence on someone where you try and coerce or constrain someone that that is a form of dominance which should be avoided by the follower of Jesus. Now this is certainly a valid line of Christian thought and I recognize in that line of thought people who are trying to follow the way of Jesus as best as possible. This isn't the line I take so I'm part of the school of thought which which makes a difference between violence and lethal violence. So we see in, for example, in Jesus's commands about don't take an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a life for a life. The trajectory of that teaching is always towards a life for a life. And that what we are talking about when we say a non-violent resistance to evil is a non-lethal violent resistance. That it is the lethality that's the problem. It's the intent to kill. It's the use of violence which is intended to take the life of the enemy or the opponent. That's the thing that we are trying to avoid and that we think is evil. So, for example, if, if you were being attacked by an enemy, I wouldn't feel bad using violence to protect you. I'd throw your assailant to the ground. I'd do what it took to get that person to stop. But there is a world of difference between using controlled and limited violence against an enemy and taking out a gun and blowing that enemy's brains out. So when I'm talking about non-violence, I, I really actually mean non-lethal violence. And I really am trying to talk about those intents and actions which are meant to kill a human being in order to solve a problem. Now this brings up another rubble-clearing thing that we need to talk about, which is the practitioners of non-lethal violence, the people who are trying to follow the way of Jesus when it comes to enemies, are not doing it because it solves all the problems. In fact, it doesn't solve problems. And as we've seen, it in fact makes some life more difficult. It's easier to drop a bomb on your enemy than it is to figure out non-lethal solutions to your enemy's issues. It's easier to kill than to not kill. So what we're doing here is we're not solving the problem of violence. As Stanley Hauerwas often says, I don't practice nonviolence because it's a solution to violence. I practice nonviolence because Jesus asked me to. So one of the things I think we have to unclench ourselves is our addiction to success. We don't practice these things because they work. We practice them because they're good. And the fact that goodness doesn't always succeed in this world says a lot more about the world than it does about goodness. The way of the world that follows a pragmatic approach towards success is essentially a world that says might is right. Whatever is powerful, that's what defines the truth. But as followers of the way of Jesus, we instead affirm Mary's prayer. The hope that the mighty will be pulled down and the humble lifted up. We don't think that power in this world is evidence of goodness or rightness or truth. It's just evidence of power. And those are not the same thing. So followers of the way of Jesus recognize this. And they are alert to its dangers and to the temptations of pragmatism. To the temptations of simplicity. That killing human beings to solve problems is the easiest and quickest route to success. It's a short-term success. And followers of the way of Jesus are in this for the long term. And we're in it for other reasons besides seeing our nation or our tribe or our group win at the expense of someone else. We don't practice nonviolence because it works. We practice nonviolence because Jesus asked us to, and he said that his way was the better way. It is the way of the truth and the life.
And here I'd like to quickly point out that although the way of Jesus doesn't always lead to riches and wealth and power, according to the way of the world, and it might not lead to national triumph, it does lead to human flourishing. It does, quote-unquote, work, because it leads to people forgiving each other, it leads to restored relationships, it leads to ending of cycles of violence, which otherwise would just continue on and on and on. So a very common objection, which is always lobbed against practitioners of non-lethal violence, is that we are somehow living in this utopian fantasy land. Whereas if we had to live in the real world, we'd realize that killing people is the thing that we have to do. But I think that the utopian fantasy land is all on the other side. We do live in the real world. We live in the world in which lethal violence is the solution to so many problems in which our countries wage eternal, constant war against other countries, in which we kill our prisoners, in which we kill our babies. We live in a world which is using the death of human beings as a solution to problems time and time again. And I would like to say to the so-called realists, how's that working out for you? You tell me that a life of non-violence doesn't solve violence. Well, your life of violence isn't solving violence either. The endless cycle of killing, revenge, doesn't work. There is not a single war that has stopped war. The Allies didn't stop the Nazis. There are pictures of people flying swastika flags, marching in rallies in support of Trump. The Nazis are still with us. Fascism is still with us. Violence and war and killing is still with us, despite the fact that we constantly employ violence and war and killing in order to stop these things. So there are a lot of practical, sensible suggestions and solutions. There are political ways and social ways of trying to embed non-lethal violence into our forms of life. And We'll talk about these things and we will explore them. But one thing I want to leave you with now is again to talk about the affections, the affections of the heart. To try and talk about not how we do something, but why we don't want to do it. Which is why I return back to patriotism. There has been no war, no exception, that has not been waged because of patriotism. Because of the impulse to be with people who look like us and sound like us as much as possible, and to protect and hoard these resources at the expense of other people who don't look like us and don't sound like us. So all war has been waged by patriots to expand their territory, and it's been waged by patriots defending their territory. Patriotism, nationalism, tribalism, whatever we're going to call it, lies at the root of all of these conflicts. And so I'm not being some crazy utopian to say, what if we looked at patriotism itself? What if we unclenched ourselves from this patriotic affection? What if we instead acted like Jesus did, which was to cross over these boundaries and barriers, which was to give resources away to the least deserving, to the out-group, which was to say, there's always more because you can give it away. Which was to say, your people, the way that you organize yourselves publicly should be seen by others as an example of how you love each other. That Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans and women and children and Romans and slaves and masters will be mutually submitting one to another, withdrawing their selves in order to make space for other selves, and willingly laying down their lives for their friends without taking the lives of their enemies. And this is what I mean when I talk about being followers of the way of Jesus. And this is not a private event. You cannot privately love your enemy and then publicly blow their brains out. Jesus didn't make a differentiation between public and private. That is a differentiation invented by the modern West, by modern individualism, 
as a way to negotiate these spaces that we live in. But this is not a space that Jesus invented. When he said he wanted his people to love their enemies, they were public enemies he wanted them to love. They were public foreigners, public Gentile oppressors, public poor people, public rich people. And he wanted his followers to love them and to show that they weren't clutching tightly to what was rightfully theirs, even when it was rightfully theirs, because they served a different king who was reinventing the world around them and calling it the kingdom of heaven. For in other words, the realm where people say yes to God. We're going to look at more of this in the following episode. Please join me. I look forward to seeing you then. I'm very happy to welcome back to the tent Sean McCoy and Chris Marchand, my old friends, my sparring partners. Welcome back, guys. It's nice to see you again. Good to see you, my friend. Good to be here. So uh, we've often heard a little bit about Sean's story, specifically when it comes to violence and organized violence. And I do keep thinking, Sean, we need to give you some we need to just sit you down and interview you one day, don't you? Don't you think, Chris? We just need to interview Sean and find out about his life and his road to violence. What, what do you think when you hear all this stuff about violence and the laying down of swords and stuff, Sean? Well, I think to me, it's at the crux of one of the biggest challenges we have in, in, in our application of all these things to the real world. I mean, we're, yeah. we're under the threat of violence all the time, and it's, and it's a part of what we've done since, since creation, if you will, regardless of how you define that. We're up against it historically. We're up against it on the daily, not just from other people, but from just the world. And so I think it's this this physicality yeah. and, this, and the softness to it and the vulnerability that we have. And then how we react to it in terms of solving problems between social animals. It, it, there's a, there's a, a huge paradox. What did you think about my... I, I try to make this distinction between lethal violence and using violence at all. And you've pushed back on me a bit in the yeah. past. Go on, keep pushing. What? Do you, so like, th- you don't like that distinction? No, <clears throat> excuse me. No, because I think it, it, I mean, to me, it's kind of this, it's, it's, a, it's not, maybe it's an all or none. I don't see, and, and I say that because I don't see Jesus, the story of Jesus disseminating in, or, or discerning relative to where the violence stops. Now, I know mm-hmm. you can get really nitpicking and go, well, if you eat, uh, if you rip a plant out of the ground and you eat it, you're killing the plant. Or, right. you know what I mean? Like if I, if I rub hand sanitizer on my hands, I'm killing bacteria. And so you're, are you being violent? And it is something that I, I'm definitely internally always struggling with around what is, what level of quote unquote violence and how far do you take that? Because it, it is a, it can be a slippery slope. I, I just think if somebody came into my home uh, let's, let's we tone it down a bit, make it a little bit more uh, specific, uh, and and just wanted to physically and was angry or was upset and did something mm-hmm. that was necessarily life threatening, but was something that needed to be happening physically. I I, I want to use the least amount of physical interaction required right. to to defuse that situation, and and even to the point of giving up my own safety for that. And then the, and then the other hook with that is as a, as a father and as a as a husband. Um, I can remember first talking this with my wife and her response, even my kids' response were kind of like, well, you know, you're not going to be here to, so you, if somebody came in here to hurt us, you wouldn't help us kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this is your immediate family. That's a huge paradox to put out there to say, if you're going to say no on some level. Right. And, and so that, and it becomes, there's a natural order of things that says, uh, I want to be safe and secure. And you're telling me that this isn't going to happen. And not that they're, you know, running for the hills or anything but it was just it was it challenged all of us in terms of that thought process I, but i just mm-hmm. i can't read I, I, at this point in my life i can't see those words i can't look at what's happening in the world and then the effectiveness of violence anyway you, you've talked about yeah, it many times, right Bonhoeffer and the rest of these kind of things yeah and if you really really look at it has it is it really better yeah we're really better off because of it and man i just don't know it's like retributive justice versus restorative justice with the death penalty down here in texas or anywhere yeah. i mean all of those stories sound great until you really, really look at it, their effectiveness and what restorative justice and what that does. And isn't that at the very crux, no pun intended, of, of Jesus' life in the gospel? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a counter to power saying, I could level this whole place. I have it within me. I'm not going to. 
even though it's not only in my capacity to do so, but even if I'm justified, I'm not. So how do I, how do I juxtapose that sentiment and then say that's all together good and fine over there, but then I have to, I have to, I have to somehow draw a line somewhere. That's my, that, that's the struggle I have, but I, I, I find myself not wanting to be a part of it in any way. Yeah. I, I mean, I find it so ironic that I'm talking to a, a, a Texan ex-military <laughs> father and he's more pacifist than I am. I think this is hilarious. This is great. I mean, I, in terms of, I have a lot of time. I just do have a lot of time for people that don't want to use any violence at all. And they even will say like words are violence and mockery is violence and shouting loudly is violence. like, they really take it seriously. The idea that you can inflict violence or domination on somebody else. And that they're like, I want to live a life that doesn't dominate other people. And I do find, I have respect for that for sure. I do think I just, I, it's Jesus, Jesus used violence in the temple though. So I kind of bit like, well, what's going on there? If flip the table though, I don't know if that, I mean, yeah. Right. It was more out of frustration. It was more of disengaging that medium from being allowed to practice in the temple versus, you know, he didn't, he didn't even push it first away. He, he disrupted the medium to allow that to happen. I guess this is just where I, I would say like, that is a form of violence. It's sure. just not lethal violence. And I try and make that distinction, but, it's not very, uh, I admit that it's a slippery slope. Chris, what are you gonna, what do you think? So I'm, oh boy, when, when you brought up this subject, I'm, I'm just, I'm excited about the whole thing. I'm excited about violence, Stephen. <laughs> it's very uh, exciting. Okay, <laughs> I'm frothing at the mouth. No, so I, I think one of the things that I thought about as you were talking and describing where you stand on this is, I wonder if there are three categories and there might be even more. Hmm. So there's lethal violence, and violence, and then there's force. Okay. Because, okay, have I ever told my hospital story here? I can't remember if I've told this on the podcast. I don't think so. So uh, I was a hospital chaplain for a year, and there was a point in time where a patient became psychotic and attacked nurses yeah. and chased nurses down the, 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 in the hospital. Yeah. I happened to be on the floor when this happened, and I subdued him. Right. I had, this is why I want to separate violence from force. I had zero sense of violence in my heart, but I had complete force, meaning I have to do whatever it takes to get this guy to stop attacking the nurses. I had to take him down because there was no security guards at, at, at that time. Yeah. And I had to, he grabbed her hair yanked on it actually pulled some of her hair out and i had to i was i was forcing his hand open and in the midst of that other nurses came around every single one of us we, we were all, we were almost in tears as, as it was happening right we had no desire to want to hurt this person and we did we used force yeah and so like but I'll, but i get I'll, I'll tell you this so i felt like i my conscience is clear of what happened that day the other day though, this week, I was with a parishioner, somebody in my church just a couple of days ago. And he gave me an idea. He, uh -huh. We were talking about church related stuff. He, he, he shared an idea about the direction our church should go. Do you know what I did? I said, that's a stupid idea. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> now I know him pretty well. He's a pretty straightforward kind of guy. And so I said, man, that is just not a good idea. Uh -huh. And I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on that now. My, yeah. my words, I was more violent in that yes. moment yes. because I wanted to kill his idea. I wanted to, I wanted to destroy his idea. Yeah. And so I, I, that's where I kind of want to make a differentiation. I'm curious what you think about that. How, how do you perceive those differentiations? Um, I think it does have something to do with negating a person's personhood or trying to sort of wipe them off the map. Like it, it's that, it's that dismissal idea. It's like the idea of like negate, like just excising them from reality, like out of sight, out of mind, get out of here. You, we're going to kill you. We're going to abort you. We're going to drop a bomb on you. What, like whatever it takes to just, so we don't have to think about you anymore. That's what we're going to do. And that, that seems to be the go-to solution for so many people so much of the time in, throughout history right so like sean was saying it's a deeply human thing i mean it is deeply human to do this right mm -hmm. and i think that that is the kind of impulse that jesus and the earliest followers of him were resisting 
that resistance, they were resisting the temptation to solve their problems by negating the person who was causing the problem, right? And, and so I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to get at when I talk about lethal violence or whatever. And so it's just that. So like when you're, when you're trying to shut down somebody by saying he's dumb or stupid, you're just trying to, you're not engaging with him at all. You're just negating him. And, and so now you need to go and repent and you need to <laughs> restore a relationship. Right. And, and I, I guess like, and I don't see you trying to negate the personhood of the psychotic patient who you were prying his fist from, this lady's hair like i don't see you're not negating that guy's personhood there right yeah so i i feel like there's some that would be the kind of the difference there mm -hmm. and um yeah that's where i'm getting at and, it's, and you know you look at like james talks about the tongue taming the tongue and it just it does seem to be something that's clearly a form of violence to wipe somebody off the face of this earth even with your words <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that, that's, that's where I'm starting to go. I didn't know you were going to ask this question. So I'm thinking off the top of my head, but it's something like that. Well, I do want to, I do want to commend, I do, I do want to clarify that it is a difficult context and I have not been immediately impacted in terms of what happened to make this decision. And this is where I'm, I'm wanting to be this way. I'm still very well aware of the violent nature of this world. I'm still capable of it. I still have anger mm -hmm. in those kinds of things. I think a big part of it is just trying to temper those things down. So then in a situation like that, that, that Chris is talking about, like just from the outside looking in, I see zero reason to judge or, or kind of go, oh, he shouldn't have done it that way. Like, it, I think, I, and I love the way you put that force versus violence. And even when you're talking about lethal violence versus, I would say only like, you know, you're, you're trying to seek power and control over somebody. You're trying to exert authority over somebody with those levels, of, with the level of violence you're talking about, Stephen. So the distinction is very clear to me in terms of that. It's definitely not a disagreement. It's just more for me that internal challenge of how far does that line go and how far can I yeah. take it? Well, this is where I'm, this is, anyway, one of my frustrations, <laughs> not meaning this to be a constant temp, uh, outlet for my own frustrations, but a frustration that anybody like me has when they talk about violence to groups of people is that the groups of people, they will always come at, you'll always be faced with some kind of like, oh, well, they think they're scoring a point like, oh, well, Jesus was violent or, oh, well, what about that time you did that? And they, or they'll point to some failure. Like I knew, a, I knew a pacifist and when the chips were down, he ended up fighting back. So it's all rubbish, right? And it's, this is kind of like point scoring. And I feel like saying, well, I'm not saying that like a life of that seeking to, to be nonviolent is always going to work. Like, I don't think the truth, the goodness of it is in whether people always succeed at doing it, right? Like, it's good because they're trying hard to actually live out a Christ-like life. Like, that's what's good about it. It's not whether they succeed or not. It's that they're trying hard to do it. Whereas quite often, you'll meet the exact opposite. It's certainly in Christian circles where they're trying really hard to kill people. <laughs> they really want excuses. Like, what they come to you, it's always with like, could I kill somebody now? What about now? What about now? Like, that's what they want. They want you to give them a justification for why they're allowed to kill somebody. And I, I'd much rather be around people who are trying really hard not to kill people. Right. Mm -hmm. And oh, that, exactly. that's the difference is that the, 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 the guy who ends up having to use some force on somebody and maybe that person even dying who's in like, who's, who's morally, sad about it or or remorseful or swears that it'll never happen again and will do whatever it takes to make sure that they never in a position where they have to take a human life again i'd much rather be around that person than somebody who wraps up their violence with a flag and a song and a holiday and cheerfully enthusiastically does it right like there's a huge difference between those two people uh, those groups of people and so that's that's why I that's why I certainly would never mock somebody who says I'm not going to do any violence at all, even with words. I would never mock them because they're trying really hard to obey Jesus. <laughs> so I will mock the the militaristic you know, jingoistic person, though, who claims to to love Jesus and then clearly loves their guns more like that person is a, a source of irony. Because they're not, their lives are not following their words at all. But the other side, even if they fail at it, at least they're trying. 
Yeah, that's what, so, so that's what's interesting to me. That's why I think I want to make that differentiation between force and violence because, and, and I immediately, the whole, the whole time you were talking, Stephen, I was thinking about, and I, and I apologize if I, I'm like afraid of annoying you with more, more uh, violence questions. Uh, but, but what I was thinking of is the police force. Yeah, right. And, and how do we, so like there's, con, there's concepts, right? Okay, let's talk about the concept of violence. But I immediately started thinking, yeah, but on the ground, what does this look like in our communities? And uh, I am continually thinking about, I, I want to throw out absurd ideas. And absurd, people, when I think, when I uh, throw out these ideas about the police force, people go, yeah, that'll never work. And I kind of go, yeah, I know. But there's an element where we still need a police force, but what if we had as much as possible a non-lethal police force? It, and, and I know people think that's ridiculous. Of course it's ridiculous. It's only ridiculous in your country, Chris. This was, this is, you do realize that British police aren't armed, right? I don't know enough. Yeah, I don't know right, enough. Right, like, like this, is the, this is part of the thing is like Americans, especially Americans, they've got, they're convinced that like, if we don't, arm our police with lethal weapons then chaos will ensue and because everybody's armed in your country like it's just it's just it's kind of a whole mess of lethal violence of people just absolutely addicted to killing humans to solve their problems and it leads to a really violent society like i've never felt less safe i i've lived in america before it's far far less uh safe place to live than the uk and the uk the police aren't armed the criminals aren't armed like there is some of that every once in a while of course of course but so don't nobody bother writing to me with your gotcha points i know i know there's gun deaths in the uk i know that but the culture of it there is not an accepted culture it is not a a default everyday occurrence and the police here are not armed so so what you said uh, what you said about utopia really resounded with me because what you're telling us as Americans is, you know what? You actually haven't imagined enough of what it could actually look like. You haven't actually taken seriously what it might look like to, okay, we have to have a police force. Well, does it, is there a way to make it as non-lethal as possible? And what you're challenging us with is like, you people haven't even begun to think about it yet. <laughs> Americans mock, mock me for that, or they mock the British for that. So the only times I've ever heard America like not the only times, but I often would hear Americans basically mocking the idea that the British police sure. didn't have, they only had truncheons. Or, um, they had weapons of violence, but they just didn't have lethal weapons. Like, but, uh, and listen, I, listen, the police, talking about the police force is a morally complicated thing to do right now because police forces are not a hundred percent always systematically on the side of good. They just aren't. And, and even in our Western societies, and, and we know this, everyone knows this. And if you don't know it, then you need to open your eyes. And so we have to also think about the systematic force as well. And, and that individually good people might be involved in systems that themselves are bad or, or tend towards bad. So you're talking about the police is a complicated thing. I do know and heard of individual policemen who who are aiming to de-escalate violence. Because one of the things you have to be aware of is that whenever the police show up with their weapons, it almost always exacerbates the violence. It doesn't de-escalate it. It makes it worse so many times. Like statistically, this is a huge truth. And, um, and so like this idea that like coming in with guns blazing is going to solve the problem is it just makes it so much worse. And so I have heard of stories of policemen who are aware of this. And there was a one story of a policeman who talked down. There was a gunman in a uh, and he talked him down rather than shoot him, even though he could have shot him. And afterwards, some people were kind of mocking him for not doing that, like for not killing the, the gunman. <laughs> He's like. I, we've emerged from this with no bystanders being killed and no policemen being killed and no criminal being killed. Like, why are you mocking me? <laughs> right. It's part of that idea of like the, this culture is this gung ho culture. Like you solve a problem by being dirty, hairy or being some maverick policeman. Like that's meant to be our hero. Right. And, and that's your point, Stephen. That's, that's where I find my biggest rejection now 
is as somebody who, who grew up in that world of, you know, this, you're going to, you know, this revenge was everything. Getting, you getting the comeuppance that you deserve and, the, and the being the force behind that. And to your point of, is it, it becomes absurd uh, when that's your mantra and that's your culture, that if you come to me and say, what do you mean, lay down my sword? The only reason why I'm in this position and can stay in this position is because of this sword and you're telling me to lay it down, you are a fool. You know, relative to that, relative to that reality and that imagination, that's true. This is yeah. why uh, the Christians were looked at like ridiculous. Like, what do you, you're gonna you're gonna adopt a bunch of babies that aren't yours. You're gonna yeah, yeah. this person slap you again on the other side of your face. You're gonna let the apostle Paul burst kick down your door or Saul kick down your yeah. door and drag you away, and not fight against. Like, what are you? You're not even a person. You're not, and you're not even worthy of of life anyway. You've made this grace. And look at you. I mean, here's the result is right in front of you. And so there's that imagination of going beyond that, that there's something more at stake here than just that physical moment is when things can really change. And it's not having that imagination inside our culture, and especially in the United States, that without guns, without all this stuff, that somehow we're, our lives are in jeopardy. I talk to people that are in the most secure neighborhoods, most affluent neighborhoods. I'm in it. And yet they're, they're ready. And I mean like ready, like guns are in, but at the same time, and the irony and what always draws me back is these are also well-intended and I say this with all sincerity, these are not evil people. Well, exactly. Exactly. They're not all like Darth Vader's. No. Right. They're, they're not all like waiting to, to inflict mass violence on people, but they're, I I'm thinking of, think of, think of Die Hard. Think of the movie Die Hard. Look, I love the movie Die Hard. I think it's this perfect action movie, but like, we all know the story of it, right? Think of the cop. Reginald Vell Johnson, the actor, I don't know the, the character's name, but the, the cop who is scared to draw his gun because he accidentally shot a kid one day and when it was dark and he accidentally, this policeman, his backstory is, is that he, he accidentally killed the wrong kid. He killed a kid. And so now he doesn't want to draw his gun. And then the movie progresses. And then do you remember how it ends at the end? Right. Yeah. The classic like redemption of this guy's thing is that, he right at the end, the bad guy rears up and he's going to kill John McClane. And then there's this huge bang. And my friend, who's a filmmaker, he said they, they, they cranked the sound up to that. It was the, it's the loudest sound in the whole movie, a movie filled with explosions, but they cranked the sound up and it's the Reginald Vell Johnson character has just shot the criminal in the forehead. Right. And this is the, the moment of redemption. Right. And, how many movies do this? How much of our entertainment of our imagination has been shaped by the redemption comes when you have the guts to kill your enemy. And, and so that to, to that too, Stephen, what I think it's underplayed is that you see that there's potential trauma from taking the life of another human being, which despite its uh, popularity and despite how many times we've done it, we also act like it's something that's very normative and very something that you just do and it's no big deal. People do not take into account the actual emotional and physical trauma that it takes to, to extinguish another human being's life. We take, if you're in that movie Die Hard and it's over the next day, Jimmy, people would be in therapy for years. I know. Like, and I make the joke about John McClane. Like, if I was in his family, I would go wherever he went for Christmas, I would go somewhere else. The exact opposite. That guy is going to be so messed it's, up. It's going to be awful. Like you're talking about yeah, I, know. You know, I mean, your boss being blown away in his office in front of you if you're his ex-wife and all that. And then we just like, oh, and then they just kiss at the end and the, and the, and the sirens fade. And everybody's happy. And that's the stuff that I grew up with being pounded in my head that this is what's normal. So did I. So did I. Right. Yeah. Right. We all did. And so it's like, okay, so this is this is what this is how we react. And this is what we should believe in. And even if you don't believe in it, it becomes a subconscious thing to your point where if you're not the one holding the gun, defending your family, at the same time, we're going to church and saying how much we love Jesus. And yet we're missing that he's one of them are going, hey, I could have done this too. And I didn't. That's a big part of this. It's a pretty yeah. significant part of the story. And you're missing it. And you're missing yeah. it. And it's also, I mean, like you've pointed out, I mean, it's not even realistic. Like, it's not based in reality at all. Like, the reality is violence creates trauma everywhere it goes. Yeah. Um, the reality is that lethally violent solutions to violent problems don't actually solve the problem. They just make it worse everywhere you go. Uh, the reality is your family is not safer if you have a gun because most gun deaths happen accidentally between family members, right? Yeah. Like, like or not even accidentally, like most guns fired in anger are fired by one family member against another. Like this, these myths are not even true. <laughs> yeah. 
you aren't going to protect your family best by having a gun. You aren't redeemed when you f- kill your enemy. Destroying that guy and wiping him off the f- face of the earth doesn't solve the problem. And I think it'd be well, historically, I go back to, I mean, look right now in the UK, but I mean, I don't know a lot of listeners in Europe. Historically, how often did France and Germany and everybody else in Europe, how many wars, how many, I mean, just, I mean, obliterating each other for centuries. Yeah. Right. And since one of the big things at the end of World War II, which was a lot different than World War One, if you look, look at the Treaty of Versailles and how that was handled in terms of, you know, restorative versus, you know, retributive right. justice. Right. What we did after World War II, we helped, pro- and who's got the strongest economy right now in the entire, in all of Europe? Yeah, right. Germany. It's Germany. Yeah, yeah. And yet the idea that Germany and the UK are going to go to war right now, would that ever happen? No. Because it was restorative after World War II. It wasn't retributive. Yeah. And, and I mean, so we see it work and then we just fly by and go, oh, yeah. So this, but the problem is fast forwarding that today and say, what do we do with our, our enemies if we're the United States right now and say, say, I don't know, it's not countries per se, but let's, let's pick Iran, let's pick, uh, you know, ISIS, all these different groups, you know, Al-Qaeda, whoever. We're, we're in Japan. I mean, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. I mean, they're the ones that did that and killed Americans in this surprise attack. And yet right now we would never go to war with Japan. Why? It's not because we turned around and we rubbed their nose in it. It's because we, it was restorative. And so we see it play out and it actually work, even in the midst of all this other stuff. So after 9-11 and stuff like that, and look, I was one of those after 9-11, I was going to go back in. I looked at doing that, all this other stuff. Like I was ready to go and as America, and you know, I was in, I got, I got swept up in all that stuff. But look at, let's look at the last two decades and you tell me that what we've done is put ourselves in a better position than what we were when it started. Yeah, it just doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, there's also the extra added level of like, uh talking about what followers of jesus should do as opposed to what nations are going to do unless i've talked about many times is that you could make you could make all sorts of arguments why lethal violence is what a country has to do in order to defend itself and i could go all right you still haven't answered the question whether i as a follower of jesus should participate in that so there is that as well and maybe that's why i was curious about bringing up police forces because that this is very on the ground. Uh, should I be telling people in my faith communities, you really should not be a part of the police force? Or if they are, do, do they become, within America, do they become an absurd reality? Which is like, well, I, I'll be on the police force. I'm not going to carry around a gun. I'm here to protect. I'm here to deescalate. I mean, who knows how long they would last? <laughs> a couple well, of weeks. I mean, that's the other thing with, with some of these institutions. It's not like what you do is you say... Um, Will it accept you? Yeah. Will it accept you knowing what you are, who you are? Mm-hmm. And if it will, then fair enough. But if it won't, then like, in a way, you let them make the decision. You say, this is what I do and this is what I'm for. Do you want me? Yeah. And it's that kind of idea. So, and then if you're very clear, if your moral compass is working <laughs> and you say to somebody, to some group, I want to join you. I want to give my service to you this is what I do and this is what I stand for. And they turn around and reject you. Well, then, you know, you have a very clear sense then, right. Of what, where they stand. But if you go in and go, Oh, I'm just going to put my own uh, ethics and morality and moral compass. I'm just going to hide it for a while and hope that I'll be a quiet, gentle pressure changing the system from within or whatever. Well, nothing ever happens and the system will just overtake you almost certainly. But like, you know, that, that, if, if somebody says to me, should I go and do that? I'll say, no, it'll destroy you. But if somebody says, should I enter? I think I might've told you about my friend who was an, who's a total pacifist who wanted to become a chaplain in the army because he said that the, that's who needs pacifists the most. <laughs> and, but he never hid his pacifism. And so of course he was rejected. Yeah. Right. So he did get, went through the process and he got rejected. Well, he knew, he knew, I, I can't remember how far he went, but this was the Canadian army for what it's worth. Well, Canada well, have does you, have an army. Have either of you uh, seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge? Yeah, based on, based yep, on I love that movie. But, I mean, it's a real, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a Medal of Honor winner in the United States military who was a pacifist and wouldn't, wouldn't shoot a gun. Yeah. And so he, so that whole story is a little bit in line of what you're talking about, where it is a paradox. How do you serve? How do you, are you in the police force? And if, and then it be, you can even take that out even further, uh, Chris, where, because you're looking at, if I'm paying taxes or supporting, you know, the making that happen, but I'm like, oh, I want to be a pacifist, but I'm over here. 
contributing to the economy. Because I mean, if you go back to 9-11, the reason they attacked the World Trade Centers wasn't because it was uh, anything other than, I mean, the primary was because it was considered the economic center of the United States. And there was a part of that to try to take down the socioeconomics of the, and, and to hinder it that way. And they, and they looked at everybody in those buildings as contributing to the economic existence of the, of the country that was, impressing, that was oppressing them. Mm-hmm. So by saying, oh, I'm, I'm just a waiter in a restaurant, to, on the other side, they'd sell that, but yeah, but you're contributing to this whole thing to make it happen. And that's definitely a struggle, I think, on my end. Being I, I would be up for a coalition. I don't know how we do this, like we, it, like some kind of unionization, because I feel powerless as an individual citizen. But I would say, yeah, whatever money of mine is allocated to war and defense, it, I, I'll give it to the government. Let's say I'll just give it. Who cares? But it, it needs to go to the fighting homeless populations or something like that. I mean, like, is there a way? I mean, I feel so powerless as a citizen, uh, but I don't know. I mean, maybe there's something to that in the future. <laughs> Well, you are powerless as a citizen. I mean, this is partly, you're not totally powerless, but you are largely powerless. And certainly as an individual, you are, which is why we, these systematic problems don't get changed by individuals heroically standing against them. They get changed by generations of people with a new imagination. Well, well, but to that, to that as well, though, but our pursuing of politics, like our original country was the reason it was created the way that it was. The intent was for local representation to be able to go up and ensure that the federal government did not overstep its bounds. And that's a whole reason you have that. So the system is set up, was originally set up that way so that your voice was to be heard. It's just, I think we've lost a few steps. Yeah. And you usually find that institutions where, because killing humans is like the easy way out. What you'll often find is that um, when institutions get big, then they get kind of lazy because it's a lot harder to look somebody in the eye and to really know somebody and to, to take the effort to, to reconstitute them or to rejuvenate them or to change or to adapt. Like those are, that's hard work. And that's the kind of work that kind of only happens in smaller groups. And as soon as things get big, they start getting lazy and they start taking the easy route out, which is to kill humans to solve the problems. And so this is partly why I think whatever an ecclesiology, whatever a Christian ecclesiology, like a theology of the church would be when it comes to this kind of stuff, it's part of the solution is going to be stay small, stay human, you know, stay where you can keep your eyes on each other, which is part of what was even trying to happen with that American experiment, which was we, we need to keep government accountable. But of course, everything's so big and bloated now that it's that is just sort of true on paper but not really true in reality anymore which is partly where you bring up that whole like benign anarchy stuff that we've talked about which is that willingness to dismantle your institutions if they no longer serve their purpose and i i don't think i can do that about america but maybe we can do that about our church groups <laughs> that's something we do have some power over uh friends i think this would be a good place to jump off because we're going to jump back on the violence bandwagon in the following episodes where Justin Bronson Berenger is going to come back to talk about not only the business of war, but also to answer some specific questions that have been coming in from listeners and to talk a little bit about some of these common objections that arise when nonviolent people try and talk about violence to Christians. So we'll see you in the following weeks, friends. Thank you for joining. Talk soon. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.